Our text tonight is from 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you would, turn in your Bibles there to 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles in the back of the pew or the chair back in front of you. You can find that on page, page 576. Before I read the passage, let me give you the context for this letter. The Apostle Paul is the author, and as the title, 1 Timothy, suggests, this is the first of two letters as contained in the canon of Scripture written by Paul to Timothy. Now, Timothy is a disciple of Paul. Paul describes him as my true child in the faith. He, met, he first met Timothy while preaching the gospel in Lystra in the province of Galatia on Paul's first missionary journey. And Timothy was converted under his preaching. From Acts 16, we know that later, Paul revisited Lystra on his second missionary journey, and he invited the young Timothy to travel with him. This letter was written sometime between 62 and 64 A.D. after Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment. Upon his release, Paul returned to some of the churches he had established for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging them in the faith. Well, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus while he journeyed on to Macedonia, from which he wrote this letter. We see in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So this is a pastoral letter. It is the mentor and apostle writing to his disciple and young pastor with specific instructions for shepherding the church in Ephesus that was being attacked by false teachers, those that taught a different doctrine other than the true gospel that Paul had first delivered. So with that background, please follow along with me as I read our focal passage. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. I have a couple of points that I want us to take away from this beautiful text of Holy Scripture tonight. 
Number one, the miraculous incarnation of Jesus Christ is for the divine purpose to save sinners such as us. The miraculous incarnation of Jesus Christ is for the divine purpose to save sinners such as us. And secondly, the testimony of a maturing Christian declares an increasing awareness of our own sinfulness and an increasing thankfulness for the Lord's mercy and grace. Our testimony, the testimony of a maturing Christian, declares an increasing awareness of our own sinfulness and an increasing thankfulness for the Lord's mercy and grace to us. What we have before us in this passage is a succinct personal testimony of the Apostle Paul and a succinct statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is writing this personal instructive letter to Timothy to help him in dealing with those false teachers at Ephesus. But in verses 12 to 17, he takes a pause in that instruction to basically give his story, his testimony, to give thanks and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ for the mercy and grace that's been shown to him. And this thought is stirred in him because he also was once just like those false teachers who may have thought that they were doing good and serving God, but in actuality, they were against God. In verses 6 and 7, he describes them as wandering into vain discussions, not having understanding about the things they confidently assert to know. They were speaking out of ignorance of the truth. Paul knows that if not for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he too would still be just like them. Look at what he confesses in verse 13. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Before Paul knew Jesus Christ as Lord, he thought Christianity was false. He perceived it as false because he did not believe Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. His blasphemous rejection of Jesus as the Son of God makes Paul's conversion all the more remarkable. To better understand the weight of how he describes his former self as a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent... I'll summarize his conversion experience that we, you can read in full in Acts chapters 8 and 9. We read in Acts 8, 1 through 3, And Saul approved of his execution. That's referring to the stoning of Stephen. And by the way, Saul is Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul his Greek name. Same guy. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then in Acts 9, Paul meets the risen Lord Jesus. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, 
he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So when Paul says in verse 13 in our text, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, it's no exaggeration, is it? He vehemently opposed Christianity. He went from house to house, dragging them out, and had them thrown in prison. And the remarkable part of all that is that he thought he was serving God in doing that. But in reality, what Paul was doing was seeking to earn righteousness by works. Works which he did based on a pretty extensive knowledge of God's law. See, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a strict law keeper. But despite how sincere he may have been in his knowledge of the Scriptures, his efforts to commend himself to God through works were in vain. After that encounter with King Jesus on the road to Damascus, his story changed. He learned why Christ Jesus came into the world. How did Paul go from this zealous persecutor of Christians, this insolent opponent of Christianity, to be the most prominent apostle and missionary to the Gentile world? It was all by what God did, not anything he did in his own strength. Look at the action words in our passage. In verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength. The very energy and desire to serve God was given to him. Twice in the passage, he says, but I received mercy in verses 13 and 16. In verse 14, it was the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that overflowed to him. These action words, given, received, overflowed, show us that salvation comes from God. Paul denounces that any works he did before his conversion had any power to commend him to God. He looks back on his former life and assesses it this way. Blasphemer. Persecutor. Insolent opponent. Ignorant of truth. Unbeliever. All the works that Paul did in his pre-conversion life meant nothing to him now. In fact, in Philippians he wrote, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Brothers and sisters, most of us don't have a testimony that is quite as dramatic as Paul's. But every sinner saved by God's grace has the testimony just as powerful and miraculous. Because it is only by the supernatural power of God that anyone is converted. My own conversion experience is not dramatic. It's not a dramatic story. I wasn't some rebellious child that people would say no one would ever expect to come to Christ. 
I was kind of a good kid. I'm a Christian because of God's grace and through the ordinary means of grace of simply being consistently under the preaching of God's Word. I owe that blessing to my sweet mom. She was faithful to make sure I was in church anytime the doors were open in our small town Southern Baptist Church. And so at age 10, I heard clearly the gospel that I was the sinner for which Jesus Christ came into this world. So I became a Christian by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing dramatic, but all the less powerful because it's the work of God. Ephesians 2 says that we all were dead in trespasses and sins and that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. So every converted sinner is a miracle because God's Word just said that we have no capacity within ourselves or any desire to obey God. That desire has to come from God, just like it did in Paul's life. It's the power of God that makes the dead heart alive to serve Him and love Him. One other encouragement that we can take away from Paul's testimony is that no sinner is too far away from the mercy and grace of God. I would imagine that most of us in this room have someone that we love and care for deeply that are seemingly far, very far from God. They may be living in a self-destructive, very sinful pattern of life. They have no desire to live for God, even acknowledge God's existence, let alone show any accountability to Him. But friends, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying that God's mercy and grace will come. No one is too far that His mercy cannot reach. Think about it. No one in the Apostle Paul's life would have thought that he would be the loudest proponent for the gospel when he was once the loudest opponent of the gospel. God is patient towards sinners. So keep praying, hoping, and believing in His mercy for them. Well, Paul then reveals why this grace and mercy changed his life. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What makes this statement trustworthy? It's because the saying is based on the very words of Jesus. Luke 19.10, Jesus declared why he came into the world. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He said also in Matthew 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, why then is this trustworthy statement worthy, deserving of our full acceptance? Because of the very words of God. You see, Jesus Christ is 
God made flesh. God spoke these words. And he declared that he entered into his creation for one divine purpose, to save sinners. So it begs the question from this trustworthy statement, what are sinners saved from? And how did Christ Jesus accomplish this? Well, sinners are being saved from God's justified wrath over our sin. Now, you might think, well, I thought God is a God of love. How can he be a God of wrath? It certainly is true that God is love. In fact, he is perfect love. But God is also holy. He is pure. He is perfect. He is sinless. Our sin is an offense to our holy God. Because God is holy, he must judge that sin. If he did not judge sin, he would not be God. And his judgment is revealed in righteous anger. When God, in absolute power and perfection, spoke the world into being, it was without sin. And so were the first human beings, Adam and Eve. But sin entered into the world when Eve was deceived by our eternal enemy, Satan. She was deceived to doubt the trustworthy commands of God. And therefore sin entered the world as she led Adam and he also doubted God. And he ate of the forbidden fruit. And thus every person born afterward has been born with this sin nature. This desire to rebel against God. This sin nature makes us a slave to unrighteousness. We can only obey the sinful desires of our depraved hearts. As sin separated Adam and Eve from their communion with God in the garden, so our sin separates us from God who created us. That's the problem that every person on the planet faces. That unless we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, then we remain under the justified wrath of God for our sins. And if there's no repentance when this physical life ends, the unrepentant soul will live forever in a place of torment and separation from God, in a place called hell. It is a real place, a place of eternal punishment and separation from God. This is what Jesus Christ saves us from. Well, how then does Jesus accomplish this saving sinners from justified wrath? It begins with the incarnation of Jesus. Christ Jesus entered the world to the miraculous virgin birth, being conceived by the Holy Spirit. He entered the world as a baby, but sinless. And then he lived for 33 years on this earth, being tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. Yet he remained sinless. He remained perfect. His righteousness was perfected. He lived the righteous life required by God's law. He lived a perfect, righteous life that you and I cannot live. We're lawbreakers. That's what sin is. It is breaking God's law, and we're really, really good at it. 
But Jesus, in a breathtaking turn of events, having lived a perfect life, laid down that life. He did this through crucifixion. Jesus willingly, in obedience to God the Father, laid down his life by dying on the cross. He became the once and for all sacrifice for sins. It's the greatest act of love the world has ever known. What occurred on that cross is that Jesus took on the sins of all who would believe in him. And God the Father poured out his justified wrath on him. And Christ died in our place. The penalty of sin is death, separation from God. And for the first time ever, God the Son was separated from God the Father. And it was our sin that did that. But the proof that God's wrath over our sin has been fully satisfied is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave three days later. He lives and He reigns now as Lord of all, having conquered death and sin for us. And now He sits at the right hand of the Father, forever making intercession for those who believe in Him. Friends, that's good news. To my non-Christian friend, no matter who you are or what you've done, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of your full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And you're in good company tonight because this room is full of sinners. And the only thing that separates non-Christian from Christian is that Christian is a repentant sinner. And is that only by the grace of God. And that same grace is extended to you. That same grace is available to you. So my plea to you is to repent of your sin, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done to save you from God's justified wrath. Well, at the end of this most important, trustworthy saying, Paul says something a little bit unexpected. He says, Of whom I am the foremost. If anyone could boast about their accomplishments in the Christian life, it would have been the Apostle Paul. I mean, he had taken the gospel to virtually the entire Gentile world. God used Paul mightily in advancing the gospel outside of Jerusalem and Judea. His post-Damascus Road conversion resume was quite impressive. Instead of seeing himself as holy and righteous, though, through all these accomplishments, he sees himself the way every maturing Christian should see themselves, a wretched sinner that is only commendable to God by the grace and mercy given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not some false humility that Paul is claiming. Notice that he didn't say, I was the foremost of sinners. But rather he says, I am the foremost of sinners. This is a sincere confession. He sees in increasing clarity his own ever-present sinfulness. A maturing Christian is one that has a growing awareness of his own sinfulness, the depravity of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says it best. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who really knows the depth of sin that resides in the human heart? Well, the Lord Jesus, that's who. He knows fully the depravity of our hearts because he bore that sin in his body on the cross. So he knows it. And he received that punishment on the cross for us, knowing our full depravity. And yet from him we receive eternal life and his righteousness because of his mercy, his grace, his love, and his patience toward us. Brothers and sisters, is your testimony filled with words like the Apostle Paul? Would others notice in you a humble thankfulness toward God and a growing self-awareness of your sin? The testimony of a maturing Christian is one of thankfulness for all that has been given you in Christ Jesus. Tonight, may our minds be renewed in the truth and our hearts overflow with thanksgiving and praise to the Lord for what He has given us. Listen to what He's given us from this text. He's given us strength to faithfully serve Him. We should praise Him and thank Him for His mercy and not giving us the punishment that we deserve for our sins. We should have thanksgiving and praise to Him for His grace. His unmerited favor toward us, meaning no works of ours could earn His favor. We should have thanksgiving and praise for the very gift of faith. Realize again tonight, in case you've forgotten, that the very faith required to be saved from God's justified wrath is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We should have praise and thanksgiving for his steadfast love that is going to keep us all the way to the day of redemption. And we should have thanksgiving and praise for his perfect patience toward us. In our reluctance to believe in his faithfulness and our slowness to understand his mercy and grace toward us, he is forever patient. Under the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should see how marvelous is his mercy and how abundant the flow of grace to us and how amazing his patience is with us. The proper response to this glorious hope in Christ Jesus is thanksgiving and praise to our Lord. And that's exactly how Paul concluded this, this reflection of his own journey of grace. Look with me at the beautiful doxology in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ is the king of kings and Lord of lords. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He is the faithful one. He is the word of God. He is truth. He is our peace. He is our righteousness. He is our redeemer. 
He is our hope. He existed before the world began, and He will live forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. His throne is established in righteousness and justice, and He is surrounded by splendor and majesty. He dwells in inapproachable light, for He is light. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is King Jesus. And friends, one day, because He will keep us forever, one day we will be before Him. A day is coming when we will surround His throne and we'll join the angels in heaven worshiping the only God, saying this, To Him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. May we do the same tonight. Please join me in praising King Jesus, raising your hearts to Him in adoration, and giving thanksgiving to Him. Let's read aloud together verse 17. To the King of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of our full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners such as us. And each one of us could say, I am the foremost. But to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. King Jesus, we exalt you. We praise you. And we offer up thanksgiving to you because you humbled yourself. You were obedient to the Father and you came into this earth and lived the perfect righteous life that we cannot live. And because of your great mercy and grace and love toward us and by the gift of faith from you, we can repent of our sin and put our faith in you. So we praise you as our Redeemer. We praise you that you have conquered sin and death for us. We praise you you have provided the way for us to be saved from the justified wrath of God the Father. Tonight we offer up our hearts to you. Renew our zeal for you. Deepen our understanding of it, what you have done for us so that we live in a manner that is worthy of you. To you belongs all honor and glory and praise forever and ever. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.